Hey, if you like free stuff, you're gonna like Tim's Rewards by Tim Hortons. You can earn free food or drinks after every seven purchases. Cool, how do I win? Um, it's not a contest. You just use your Tim's Rewards card, and after seven purchases, you score a free coffee, tea, or baked good. Whoa, so I've got a pretty good chance of winning. Well, actually, you've got a 100% chance of winning. Those are great odds. <laughs> they sure are. Free coffee and more with Tim's Rewards. It's Tim Hortons' way of saying thanks. Valid only at participating restaurants. Please visit restaurant or timhortons.com slash rewards for full program details. Hey everyone, welcome to a most nutritious episode of the Bodybuilding.com podcast. Uh, I'm Nick Coleus, she's Heather Eastman, and we're happy to have you listening, as always. And we're happy to have Dr. Jose Antonio visiting us, uh, us as well from far away Florida, coming all the way to Idaho, first time I'm assuming. This is my first time in uh, the beautiful city of Boise, oh, okay. although it's kind of gray. Yeah, it's I'm used to sunshine, palm trees, beaches, it's, dolphins. Uh, this is the way it should be. The sun is the enemy, man. <laughs> You're in the Northwest now. <laughs> um, Dr. Antonio is the CEO and co-founder of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, uh, also a professor at uh, Nova Southeastern University in Florida, yes? That is correct. Author of a wide variety of research papers on nutrition, supplementation, and uh, one of the loudest voices out there speaking in defense of protein and the high-protein yeah. diet. Oh. <laughs> Am I that loud? Loud. I, I thought you had a shirt on, so defenders of protein. <clears throat> it says P. Yeah, just, just P. <laughs> That's right. Got the P shirt on. So now people people uh, who read bodybuilding.com regularly, they love their macros we hear in the comments, right? This is a yeah. macro conscious group mm-hmm. generally. Um, so when you talk about a high protein diet, what 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 are you talking about? A high protein diet. Okay, you know that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I love the 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 fact that people obsess over macros mm-hmm. and per- particularly protein. Now, what's interesting about protein is, as you well know, you probably interviewed like five thousand people, ten thousand easily. The mm-hmm. RDA for protein is what, Heather? Uh, 0.8 grams per... Wow, she gets an A+. Plus. I like I, that. I was going to say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 0.8 grams per kilo per day, right? Mm-hmm. Which is enough, I always say, to feed my hamster. Um, what is that per pound? A kilo is so that's, 2.2 pounds. Right. Very good. Mm-hmm. She paid attention in science class. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, 0.8 grams per kilo is the recommended uh, dietary allowance or daily allowance. We've no, actually known for probably four or five decades that the RDA is way too low. And in fact, um, what's what's interesting is clinicians seem to stick to this RDA and maybe even a little bit above it. But what's interesting is if you watch athletes and what they do and how they train and how they eat, they all eat well above the RDA. And so really the sticking point was this. What happens to your body if you eat well above the RDA? Does it have any health consequences? Is it, is it harmful? Is it bad for your kidneys? And so people have sort of argued about, well, when does high protein t- intake become high? And I've always defined it as you got to hit at least one gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kilo. And once you get above that, then we'll define it as high. But but really to me, the baseline intake for all athletes should be about one gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kilo. Anything below that, you know, I define as sort of moderate intake. Mm-hmm. Um, and that applies actually not just to bodybuilders and strength power athletes, but it also applies to endurance athletes. Um, of course, if you don't work out, then none of this applies. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So, so now, somebody who um, maybe doesn't really like counting macro or calculating their macros, doesn't really like bothering with calories, if they were just going to bother with one thing and say, all right, you know what, I'm only going to, I'm going to focus on eating one gram per pound of body weight or 20 grams every meal or whatever it is, and just let the rest of my, day, my diet fall where it may, let the chips fall where they may, how, what, what could they do with just that approach? Well, you know, I actually want to... One of the things I tell my students is that nutrition shouldn't be about mathematics. Mm-hmm. I mean, you shouldn't have to count carbs, fat, this right. and that. And what's the percent of, you know, is, is, am I hitting a 40, 30, 30? And I, to, to be honest, I think it's all a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, even for high-end athletes, if you focus on the one number, and that one dur- number is how many grams of protein do you get per day? So if you weigh 200 pounds, aim for 200. If you hit, if you hit 250, great. If you hit 150, okay, that's not so great. Maybe you should bump it up the next day. And when you hit your protein needs per day, what you should do is end up backfilling carbs and fat. And and typically what happens is this. Let's say I work with endurance athletes. I say, okay, you weigh 150 pounds. You're a triathlete. I want you to get at least 150 grams of protein. Try to spread it out throughout the day. Make sure you get some protein after you work out. Backfill the rest of your diet with carbs and fat. And typically with endurance athletes, they eat so much volume of food Mm -hmm. that it's not a problem getting the carbs and fat. 
bodybuilders are kind of a tricky, they're kind of, well, not tricky. Uh, they're, they're special. They're kind of odd in the <laughs> sense that, in fact, if you ask some bodybuilders, they say, well, we're, we're not doing a sport. This isn't a sport. Mm-hmm. We just are up there in our underwear. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's a lifestyle where you pose in your, your underwear. Mm-hmm. Um for them, it's kind of tricky because they're not really performing a sport. So when people say, I always ask people, what's your goal? Um, are you trying to run faster? You're trying to lift more weights? Mm-hmm. But if the goals look prettier, it's much harder to define the end point because what the hell is looking prettier? Well, usually it's you gain muscle, you lose fat. Well, how do you gain muscle, lose fat? Well, to gain muscle, lift weights, lose fat, eat better. And for bodybuilding, because you're not performing a task and you're not being judged on a task, typically the way they eat is not the way a performance athlete would eat. For instance, right. if you're a linebacker in the NFL, these guys weigh 250, 260 pounds. They're actually built like bodybuilders, but they got to move fast. The way they eat should be different than a guy standing on stage who's ripped to 250 pounds. So it, bodybuilding nutrition or what I call physique nutrition is much different than what I like. I actually prefer sports nutrition because you're training for a, a goal that's measurable. Right. And unfortunately, bodybuilding's not really measurable. It's, uh, I like sure. the guy with the big pecs, or sure, I like the sure. girl with the big butt, mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. So now, the, the, that bodybuilder who's, who may be listening to this, they probably heard that, that um, standard of one gram per pound of body weight, and they go, that's really low. Yeah. You know, right, that's, yeah. Uh, that's very low compar- uh, compared to some of the uh, recommendations that have been in programs on our site over the years. What happens between one gram and two grams, or two and a half grams? That's a damn good... Oh, can I say that? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, you can oh, yeah. say whatever the hell you want. <laughs> That's a damn good question. Here's why. Because there's only one human being on the planet who's done research looking at super high-protein diets. You know who that is? Me. I thought so. Ah, see, see, we're talking okay. to him. Now, <laughs> it's not like a trick question. In though. fact, in fact, um, one gram per pound is the baseline. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like, you know, the minimal amount you should do. Now, I remember this was like four or five years ago. I had a, a, a conversation with one of my students who happened to be a recreational bodybuilder. And just for shits and giggles, I can say that too, can I? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I said, hey, you seem to eat a lot. How much do you eat? And he sort of went through the Rolodex in his head. And he's like, let me calculate. Oh, I eat about 300 grams of protein. And so I got my calculator out. I'm like, wow, you're getting almost three grams per kilo. Wow, that's that's a lot. Right. And so it prompted an idea in my head. I said, how come no one's ever done a study where you just get guys and girls who lift weights to eat a lot of protein? Mm-hmm. It seems simple, and I realized why no one did it. So we embarked on the first study where we had guys and girls who lifted weights consume two grams per pound. Mm-hmm. So that's 4.4 grams per kilo, which is a lot of mm-hmm. eating. And <laughs> something interesting- that was shakes? It's almost it's, all shakes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I was going to say, because you wrote an article for us where you recommended trying to get as much protein as you could from whole food. Oh, so, I still recommend that. Okay. But there's a point where once you're getting enough, uh, once you eat enough whole food, you just don't want to eat. Just guzzling shakes. Yeah, and I'm tell- And what's interesting, okay, so we did, uh, and I'll get to that. We did the, uh, uh, it was two grams per pound or 4.4 grams per kilo. We did it for, for uh, two months or eight weeks. And... We didn't change their training. We're like, okay, don't change your training. The goal is just to get a lot of protein. And they had to do it through shakes because it is, I don't want to say it's impossible to do with food, but unless you sit at home and don't have a job and you eat chicken all day, right. it ain't happening. So The alarm for 2 a.m. <laughs> exactly. That's the old, mm-hmm. yeah. You ha- literally have to be a professional eater, which is kind of nuts. So all these guys, like, in fact, they all said they had to figure out how to put themselves on an eating schedule, meaning take a shake just to hit the 4.4 grams per kilo. And what happened after eight weeks, when we got, we tallied the data, we, I think we finished with like 50 subjects. We found something interesting. The group that ate a lot of protein, they didn't gain any weight. They didn't gain any muscle. They didn't gain any fat. Nothing happened, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. And we can get into mechanisms if you want, get into that science stuff. But people are like, well, how can you eat that much protein and not get fat? Well, there are things that happen to your body when you consume protein, but the key thing we found is that the upper limit, it seems, for protein intake needed for, let's say, gaining lean body mass might be between 2 and 2.5 grams per kilo, which is a little over 1 gram per pound. Now, is it a waste to do more than that? The answer to that is no, because you still utilize it, but it may not be utilized for building muscle. It's utilized for other things. So... 
We are actually following up uh, with a study, a one-year study in trained women to see what happens when they consume about 2.8 to 2.9 grams per kilo per day. Mm. Actually looking at their bones, because one of the silly things, clinicians always say is, oh, you eat a lot of protein, it's bad for your bones, it demineralizes, it's just a crock of shit. Um, Mm. But they say it all the time, and I'm like, why would protein demineralize your bones? And so... We actually are halfway through the study. We have six months of data. I actually presented it at a conference uh, last last week in Florida, and nothing. You could eat uh, female uh, uh, female athletes can eat a lot of protein, and your bones are fine. Mm. It's absolutely fine. So, so should protein just be considered free calories? Uh, should po- protein be free calories? We'll put it this way: it's very difficult to get fat if the only thing you overfeed on is protein. And I think at least that's what our data says, and other other. Other data, maybe not on such well-trained athletes, sort of suggests the same thing. But I think what's interesting about protein is that we all know about the thermic effect of feeding or food. Your audience is quite well aware of that. But there's also another thing that it might affect. It's called NEAT or NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So if you eat a lot of protein, maybe it causes you, for whatever reason, to just move. And we're not talking formal exercise. We're just talking movement. Mm-hmm. Um Non-exercise activity thermogenesis could be fidgeting. It could be walking instead of standing. It, it could be uh, taking the stairs instead of the elevator or escalator. It could be going like this because you have protein farts. It could be that. <laughs> hey, anytime you're moving, it's non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Yeah. So put it this way. Moving is always better than not moving, and it doesn't have to be formal exercise. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. And uh, when people say protein, you think whey protein or you think a powdered form of protein would that would that same sort of thing apply to somebody who's just taking a vegetable based protein i'm a big fan of a veggie protein shake i have to say it feels more like food there's actual you know fiber and nutrients in a lot of time a lot of them match up fairly well amino acid profile wise these days is that is it every bit as good when you think of it that way okay vegetarian protein we actually had one of our subjects was a vegetarian bodybuilder Mm -hmm. he had to do six to eight shakes a day Hmm. just to get his protein intake. I mean, I don't know how you do that. Uh, That's a lot of shakes. Even if you could do the whey and the case, it's just just a lot of shakes. Um, Is it doable? Yeah, it's absolutely doable. However, when you do head-to-head studies of milk-based proteins, particularly compared to uh, vegetarian-based proteins, milk-based proteins always do better. However... You can make up for the lack of quality in vegetarian proteins by increasing volume. If you put it this way, if you drink enough of it, it doesn't matter. You're getting plenty. But uh, I know I work with a lot of uh, smaller women, uh, endurance athletes, who their intake of food may not be quite adequate. So the quality of protein they take in becomes critically important. But when you're dealing with guys who like eat volumes of food, it probably doesn't matter because they're getting so much protein. Hmm, okay. Yeah. Well, and I, oh, go ahead. well, I was going to say, so um, I'm interested because a lot of these newer bodybuilders, they're really studying the science behind their macros, you know, so they get what protein does. And really, you know, in your studies, did you take a look at all at, at how the other two macronutrients really interact with proteins? You know, if you're having protein in a high fat meal or if you're having protein in a high carb meal, because I hear a lot about, you know, people trying to really dial in the science. And that's what makes bodybuilding kind of an art and a science in some ways that mm-hmm. like people are they're trying to to really nail down this this elusive the meal thing, is such you a know? thing yeah mm-hmm. yeah and actually what you ask would would make for a very complicated scientific study mm-hmm. um, and that's why no one studies it uh, really the studies I did were quite simple don't change your diet we're just going to throw a, t- a ton of protein, a ton of protein on protein. top mm-hmm. When you start manipulating carbs, fat, and protein, now you're getting getting into an area where compliance becomes a huge issue in these studies. In fact, that's why you it's you rarely see studies on the ketogenic diet. Why? Because compliance is hard as hell. I mean, who wants to eat 70% fat? So all of these diet studies, I commend any scientist who wants to do this because I wouldn't do it. I mean, I call my studies high-protein diet studies, but in fact, they're really high-protein supplementation studies. Now, when you're looking at ratios of carbs, fat, and protein, again, for bodybuilding, because as you mentioned, it's really more of an art than a science. A lot of things will work for reducing body fat. To me, gaining muscle is more a function of training, uh, well, more a function of training plus diet, whereas losing body fat is probably more a function of diet alone. That, that probably plays a more critical role. And I'll tell you this, if you take, uh, let's say, a, uh, a low-fat, high-carb diet or a high-fat, low-carb diet, and you make the protein intake identical, the fat loss will be identical. So it's protein 
Protein is the key driver of fat loss. It's not, well, I dropped my carbs or I dropped my fat. It's like, it doesn't matter if you drop your fat or carbs. It's protein that's the driver. Mm. Okay. Yeah, you don't have to see the low-protein diet. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you're right. right. Well, actually, actually, protein di- actually protein not on purpose. The mm-hmm. ketogenic diet is somewhat low in protein. Right. It is low in protein, yeah. yes. You have to be. That's because why it sucks. call it moderate protein. Moderate protein. I, I, I watched an intermittent fasting documentary where a guy was committed to a low-protein diet, um, and he was just eating this giant bowl of raspberries, and it was taking him all day to eat this <laughs> bowl of raspberries. That's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so you touched upon, and you kind of, de- you know, you said – debunked the whole, it's bad for your kidneys, it's bad for your bones. Without going too deep into the science, can you kind of just give us a, a little overview of why? Because we hear that a lot. Oh, it's so bad for your kidneys. Oh, it's, you know, it's going to leach yeah. the calcium out of your bones. Yeah, well, the bad for your kidneys, I heard that uh, back in grad school when, uh, God, who was president? Ronald Reagan. Do you remember when Ronald Reagan was president? I remember that guy. Yeah, yeah. back in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> great great school for me. <laughs> so, but... My, I remember my professor saying that, uh, yeah, if you eat too much protein, it's bad for your kidneys. It's even in textbooks, actually. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's still in textbooks, which is kind of annoying. Um, but the idea is this. When you consume protein, it has to be broken down. The waste product is urea, which contains ammonia. So you got to you gotta pee it out, right? So it has to exit your body through uh, your kidneys. And the idea was, well, you must be overworking your kidneys because you're eating all this protein. You got to get rid of the urea. And the idea that, well, your kidneys can't handle the load, so it must damage your kidneys. Well, that makes about as much sense as, well, you shouldn't do any cardio because it stresses the heart. And you know what happened? The heart has to pump more, has to more beats. Same silly stuff. Physicians back in the 60s and 70s are saying, yeah, don't exercise so much. It's bad for your heart. Why? Because exercise is a stress on your heart. But guess what, boys and girls? Anything you do to your body, your body adapts to it. So if you exercise more, your heart gets stronger. If you lift more weights, your muscles get bigger. If you eat more protein, your kidneys do a great job eliminating urea. It's it's what your body does. It's sort of like saying, hey, I live in South Florida. I sweat all the time. Hey, my sweat glands are working hard. Maybe it's bad for my sweat glands. I mean, that's the <laughs> kind of silly reasoning you see. And these are not, I mean, these are educated. I, I was I was about to say these are smart people. Well, uh, I remember they're my educated. Dad, they're, educated. <laughs> they're educated. No, they're educated. I, my father used to say, just because they're educated doesn't mean they're smart. Right. <laughs> so yeah. we got a lot of educated, dumb people who are saying that, your kidneys are overworked because you got to get rid of this waste product. Well, guess what? You're drinking coffee, right? Tea. Oh, tea. Okay. Well, the act of drinking fluid will make your kidneys work harder because guess what? You got to go to the bathroom. Well, that's got to be bad for your kidneys, right? You know, so it's this bizarre reasoning that I see amongst mainly clinicians that it just annoys the hell out of me because I've heard it for like three decades now and it's just it's just bizarre. Yeah, but there's a certain appeal to it beyond yeah. just the, oh, you know, I'm trying to look out for your interest. There's there's something about say, the high-protein diet that people just, they associate with something. Anyone who's in the gym and smell yeah. that ammonia smell of that guy that's, <laughs> well, that's not what I was saying. too much protein. What's the well, resistance? What's the resistance to well, protein? that's though, different. You know? They just stink. <laughs> um, but no, it is interesting. There's this weird anti-protein sentiment mm-hmm. that you see. In fact, you go on social media and... Not that I'm surprised anymore, but I'll see so-called experts, people who are trained in nutrition, blah blahing about the harm of protein and including the bone demineralization thing. And what's even more annoying about that is, guess what? We can actually measure bone. So why don't we just get people, guys and girls, who eat a lot of protein, measure their bone mineral density? It's fine. Mm-hmm. And in the in the six months of, of data we've collected so far at my university in, in South Florida, at Nova Southeastern University, these gr- girls, they're... One of my girls, she's a physique athlete. She went up to 4.8 grams per kilo. I had an endurance athlete go up to about 3.1 grams per kilo. Nothing happens to their bones. If anything, there's data to suggest that increasing protein intake increases the bone mineral density of the lumbar spine. So that's lower back. Mm-hmm. So if anything, uh, there's two things that could happen. One, nothing will happen. Or two, it might slightly elevate bone mineral density. Mm. Um, so it's just weird. I've I've run into this anti-protein sentiment, and I'll even make it broader. There's an anti-supplement sentiment, mm-hmm. typically, that you see with clinical nutritionists. And I think part of it is they're not familiar with athletics, so they don't, they don't know what ath- athletes do. And two, I think there's just an inherent bias in the way they're trained in clinical nutrition, which is much different than sports nutrition. Sure. And it's just kind of bizarre. I mean... Uh, for myself and my friends, and you'll meet a lot of my friends when I come in here, we kind of laugh about it. It's like, hey, that's really funny. But mm-hmm. people take that stuff seriously. Right, so. right. I, I wonder sometimes if it's just that the word protein is just forever associated with like professional wrestlers in people's minds. Like right. it, protein, <laughs> if, if I prioritize protein, it means therefore I am 
Becoming a bodybuilder, the ultimate yeah. crime. No, actually, that's probably pretty close to the truth because it's true. Protein in supplements mm. is, is is almost always associated first with bodybuilding and then maybe other athletes who do stuff. But right. it's always bodybuilding first. So uh, what's wrong with bodybuilders? Right. They just want to look pretty. Right. Well, yeah. And then we've had some yeah. people come on. Oh, yeah. Like, or or just, I, I, yeah, we did run some articles recently that basically said, you know, as you get above age 35, or 30 or whatever, you need to be an unapologetic bodybuilder, basically. Mm -hmm. You can resist it your whole life, but get to this point, well, and muscle and protein have to be your priorities actually, at that point. You, uh, in, in that article I referenced earlier, you talked about elderly men and women are the, the age group that needs to eat higher protein. Yes, because uh, data is showing that elderly men and women actually become less sensitive to protein, so their intakes actually have to go up. Mm -hmm. Interesting, mm -hmm. very interesting. Yeah, I... Um, I, whenever we talk about recommended daily allowance, I always try to kind of recommend to people that it's it's the minimum line. You know, it's get at yeah. least this much because you hear people say, well, I'm not lifting weights. I'm not running marathons. I don't need to eat more than this. You know, I'm fine. So you, you do argue that there is a case for the average Joe that's <clears throat> sitting there watching football. And, and in fact, um, there was a study that just came out where they got these are 60 to 80 year old men and women. And they were all, they, they split them up into the RDA group, 0.8 grams per kilo, and twice the RDA, which to me is still not that high. It's like 1.6 grams per kilo. And just the mere fact of increasing protein intake in 60 to 80-year-old women, it elevated their lean body mass. Mm. But here's, here's the argument I hear. Well, it's not even an argument. It's sort of like um, um, uh, people shoot from the hip and they're like, well, okay, so they gained some lean body mass. So what? I mean, they're 60 to 80 years old. Well, well one of the things if... <laughs> If you ever end up in hospital, well, put it right, don't end up in hospital laying in bed I'll because you're going to waste away like mm -hmm. whatever. Right. If you lose lean body mass while laying in a hospital bed, that is one of the predictors of mortality and morbidity. You will, you don't want to lose lean body mass. So the mere act of keeping lean body mass on with age, and you don't have to be, quote, a bodybuilder per se, you just have to move your body, um, is a good thing. And protein helps. Mm. Okay, moving your body, you're getting back to neat. I wanted to circle back around a little bit to that because you you imply that there's there's some connection between uh, non-exercise uh, activity thermogenesis and protein, and I didn't quite yeah. understand what the connection was there. That's because uh, a lot of us don't understand okay. it. Okay. So we're all in the same boat. Mm -hmm. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, obesity researchers, instead of focusing on... Well, let me backtrack. If you do, If all you do is change your exercise habits alone, it's very difficult to lose weight. Um, mm -hmm. If you change exercise and diet, it becomes more easy to lose weight. But the exercise part is maybe the part that we should not be focusing on, particularly with the overweight. It might be the non-exercise activity part. Because let's face it, most of us work out, okay, 30 to 90 minutes a day. Maybe. It depends what you do. But what about the rest of the day? Mm -hmm. Unless you have an office job where you sit on your desk and type all day. Maybe you should stand up and move. Maybe you should walk. Maybe it's okay to fidget. Any any movement is good. And what's interesting is they've done studies comparing non-exercise activity. Exactly. You got to scratch. Uh, <laughs> non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And there could be as much of a difference as 2,000 calories. Mm. That means there's some people who literally just sit still all day and other people who you're like, ah, will you sit still? Mm. But those are the people that are going to not be fat as they get older. So imagine that. A 2,000 calorie difference per day, what is that equal to? That's like equal to running 20 miles. Mm -hmm. Who the hell runs 20 miles? Well, marathoners, another net, nobody. Mm -hmm. So the non-exercise activity thermogenesis could play a big role. And let's say it's not 2,000, maybe just by moving, you burn an extra three to 400 calories every day. That's still equal to running, you know, three or four miles. Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So then maybe those people just also happen to take in more protein because they have the extra need from all that activity? Uh, no, it seemed, I, I think the idea is that protein itself may predispose you to moving more. And, mm. and let me tell you, I didn't mention a couple of the weird, not weird, the expected side effects from these high protein diets. I remember this one particular female subject, a tiny girl, she said, God, I'm just hot all the time. Like mm. temperature wise, she says, I'm sweating. Um, at night, I have to lay in bed and just turn the fan on because literally she says, I like sweat before I fall asleep. She was eating, I mean, because she was on a high-protein diet. And that was an extreme. I mean, everyone said they felt hot, but this particular <laughs> person, I was like, wow. Literally steaming. Literally, yeah. like, <laughs> like I'm just sweating all day. So, And that's why it's just so hard for you to get fat eating protein because your body just has to burn through it. And also the sort of the other sort of odd side effect with protein is that it doesn't, 
people are like, well, that's a lot of extra calories. Well, it's not like it's stimulating your appetite so that now I want a donut or now I want fried chicken or something. Um, I think in the long run, it might end up blunting your appetite a bit. So you end up not eating or craving junk. Mm-hmm. I think that's what that's sort of what happens with a lot of people. Hmm. Interesting. I find that when I have a shake after a workout, it only makes me hungrier. Really? <laughs> that could just shake. be that I'm really hungry. Yeah, I don't know. no, I find that when you're when you're actually chewing protein, because yeah, you know, as a bodybuilder, you're eating a lot right. of chicken and a lot of stuff that has that to makes be you tired. chewed. Yeah. Yeah, you get to a point where you just don't want to eat anymore. Yeah, yeah. And is this so. after cardio or weight training? Both. Both. Oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so I'm just generally a hungry eat, individual. Yeah, eat all the time. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, he's, the, he's sitting over thing. Uh, I, think, I think he has cancer. He's so one of the questions <laughs> we get asked a lot are what are some of the best food sources of protein? And since we have you here, and you know you are, and the answer is clearly <laughs> eggs. <laughs> I love eggs. No, eggs are great. She sells me eggs. Oh, yeah, yeah I've got lots of chickens. She's got the eggs. You grow chickens? I do. Oh, so she sells you the eggs and then she kills the chicken. And sells you the chicken. No. It's a murderer. <laughs> Actually, um, the animal-based proteins are the best. In fact, if I were to pick a single source, I always say you can't beat fish because you also get a lot of the healthy fat with it. Mm-hmm. So it's a great source of protein and a great source of fat. Um, but protein alone, eggs and the milk-based protein seem to do the best. If you're looking at muscle protein synthesis, which is, let's face it, that's what most of your audience cares right. about, it would be eggs and milk uh, or the milk-based protein. So that would be whey protein, casein protein, things like that. After that, it would be beef, chicken, uh, and pork. Um, the, uh, the vegetarian-based proteins, I would say, would fall after mm-hmm. the animal-based proteins. But again, you could make up for the lack, uh, I don't want to say lack of quality. It's more like the lower levels of some of the essential amino acids, like leucine, you could just make up for it by increasing the volume you consume. So if your post-workout shade is 20 grams away, you could probably do 25 to 30 grams of soy or rice protein or pea protein. Okay. Something like that. So, um, but yeah, eggs and milk are great. Yeah, because yeah, that's another question we get is, Lacto-ovo. I'm a vegetarian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do I eat? And so you're saying eggs and milk are way up there. So even if you're a vegetarian and you yeah. don't eat meat, if you eat eggs and milk, you can still. Wait, if you're a vegetarian, can you have eggs? So you could be a lacto ovo vegetarian. Yeah, so that's traditional like vegetarian a, is you that's eat, like a quasi vegetarian. Correct. Yeah. So what we the think best of, kind. <laughs> what we think of as like a, a vegan is like a real vegetarian, uh, and then vegetarians are usually ovo lacto uh, vegetarians. They get to have them, cheese. Some of which them makes cheat. Them They're ovo lacto pescatarians. Oh, they see. eat fish too. So they. Oh, I know. okay. Now that's real cheating. Uh, I know. Fish don't have souls. That's the difference. <laughs> or feet? Is that yeah. is the feet part? Yeah. They, they have a, a foot thing. That's those vegetarians. Feet, it's, okay to yeah. eat. it's interesting when I say, you know what, fish? That's still skeletal muscle because all you're eating is skeletal muscle. It's like, well, it doesn't have a hoof. <laughs> like, but chickens don't have hoofs. Vegetarian. Yeah. So just, just odd. Doesn't odd, have odd. a cute face. <laughs> doesn't. Yeah, that's true. So now, one other thing that I kept on seeing associated with you online is the Antonio adage. Which is, if it helps or has a neutral effect, try it. Just freaking do it. Right. And I, I, want, I want to help people figure out how to put this into action because everybody fancies themselves an expert yeah. right now. And I mean, we, we, we've added so many references to so many articles because people want to see them. Everybody wants to go click and look at their little abstract or read the whole damn study and figure out themselves how to put it into action in their right. life. So how do you put that into action, that, that adage? Well, you know, what's, uh, what's interesting is um, if you go outside of the the these the supplements that have the most research, protein, creatine, caffeine, beta alanine, there's sort of this laundry list of supplements where, hmm, there's not a lot of data, but there is data. Uh, for instance, branched-chain amino acids, uh, citrulline, taurine. And- yeah, there's all sorts of them. So people say, well, should I take it? And I, I always say, well, the adage is if it helps or has a neutral effect, you know, try it. Or the other one, which is, which is, I'm, I'll make an allusion to a book I was just reading. I don't know if you guys are fans fans of the Jack Reacher series, but mm-hmm. I've read a couple of those. I series. love mm-hmm. Lee Child's Jack Reacher series. Mm-hmm. So I was reading his latest book, and there was a great saying in it. It was, and I was thinking, wow, this applies to supplements. You know, it's it, it works more than never, but less than always, and that really applies to a lot of supplements. More than never and less than always. So branch chain amino acids. I remember getting in a discussion with a friend of mine. They're like, well. Well, of course, branch chains suck because why don't you just have whey protein? Because whey stimulates muscle protein synthesis better than branch chains. I'm like, you're absolutely right. It does. However, they're not mutually exclusive propositions. Can branch chain amino acids stimulate MPS or muscle protein synthesis? Yeah, but not as much. Again, it's more than never, but less than always. 
Also, branched-chain amino acids have a role in, in lowering delayed-onset muscle soreness. And believe it or not, 99.9% of athletes who do a performance sport don't want to be sore. Mm-hmm. So that's a reason to take branches. You know what? I don't want to be sore because when I go to batting practice the next day, it's hard to swing a bat when your lats are sore. Um, so every supplement sort of has its role or value. There just has to be context to it. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of conflating everything with bodybuilding nutrition when in fact there are people who just want to do a triathlon faster. I mean, there are people who buy products on bodybuilder.com who maybe don't want to gain lean mass. They just want to perform better. And you got to take that into account. So, but the idea that if it helps or has a neutral effect, or if it's more than never and less than always applies really to a lot of things. Cause even caffeine, which I love, I love caffeine and I love creatine. There are non-responders to caffeine and creatine. But again, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, here's what's interesting now that we have data on it. Worst thing for creatine, non-responders is a non-response. Okay, that makes sense. Well, now we're finding out that caffeine, there's a gene for caffeine that you're either a fast or slow metabolizer. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, we're finding out that if you're a slow metabolizer, it may actually hinder performance. So it gets a little tricky. And, and people say, well, caffeine's a drug. It's not technically like a food substrate like creatine. So now, does the, does the adage apply, you know, if it helps or has a neutral effect? Well, oddly enough with caffeine, I think there's a self-selection factor. People mm-hmm. sort of figure out, they're like, and I remember I thought people would be lying to me. They're like, ah, when I take caffeine, Nothing happens. I don't feel anything. In fact, sometimes I feel worse. I'm like, you got to be lying. That's baloney. Mm-hmm. And now the data on this uh, on this gene for caffeine, it's like, wow, slow metabolizers of caffeine actually perform exercise worse, which is, I'm like, wow, that's, that's really odd. Mm-hmm. I mean, what other genetic factors influence exercise performance as it applies to nutrition? So Interesting. So they're worse in that they are too jittery to, perf- no, to hold the barbell? Or? Actually, uh, time <laughs> or the trials opposite. on a cycle. Okay. Yeah. So the responders do better cycling. Uh, there's a group that are neutral. And then there's actually a small group that gets worse, mm. which I find really odd. And But I guess that's when you hear people say, hey, caffeine does nothing for me. And I'm like, you're lying. It's got to do something for you. It does something to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so every morning I need it. Yeah. How much are we talking about here? A, a lot. A lot. I, I got up at 345 yeah, to come actually, here. That's what I'm more interested in, is the, the high dosage of caffeine. You know, what's the lethal uh, dose there? Oh, lethal. Uh, well, actually, there's data on, on caffeine overdose. Mm-hmm. Uh, roughly, I think the lowest I've seen is you can die on 10 grams, which is 10,000 milligrams. Yep. I've even seen some guy apparently wanted to take 20,000 milligrams. Why I don't know, but he ended up in the emergency room. So hmm. that's yeah. crazy. Okay, so how do you, how do you control the experiment that is your life when you want to figure out if something is working? Say say that you buy a bottle of branched amino acids or glutamine, and you just you want to be able to tell. Okay, is this the thing that's actually making a difference? And, and the, the the easy answer to that is you actually don't know you because mm-hmm. there is a placebo effect. In fact, the placebo effect is is real. Mm-hmm. Um, let me let me tell you a quick story. Uh, this, uh, this one study where they they told the subjects you're, you'll get a placebo, middle dose caffeine, high dose caffeine. But they told them they said, okay, now you're getting a placebo. Oh, now you're getting the high dose. Now you're getting the middle dose. But they actually got the placebo every time. Mm-hmm. Subjects performed better when they knew they were getting more caffeine, just because they were told. So. The idea that there's a true placebo effect is real, but here's the kicker. When you compare a supplement to a placebo, which is almost every study, and a supplement does better, then there is a real effect. Now, how do you know personally if there's an effect? Well, if you're in a, a sport that has a podium sport or a finish line sport, you know, because you run faster, bike faster, swim faster, or jump higher. Feel better at the end of the race. That's what I That's like. another one. You feel better at the end of the race. Mm-hmm. If you're in a physique sport, you don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a guess because it's how you look. Well, and that's exactly why this sport mm-hmm. has so many followers with so many different ideas. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and you know, everyone's a researcher now, so they're pulling up their own study or their own proof of whatever they think is correct. Right. And I always turn to you know the placebo effect as, hey, even if it's just a placebo, that's still an effect. It's still an effect. It's still, and it's know? a good effect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so w- w- one thing I wanted to ask you is once upon a time, and still, I would say still now, it was all about, you know, what is in your pre-workout? What is in your post? It's like, you know, oh, look, we have citrulline. Oh, look, we have uh, probiotics in your multivitamin, but it's these tiny little dustings. You right. know? And now everybody's into transparency and clinical doses. Does it end up being much better um, in, the, in the age of the clinical dose? What's the question again? <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I don't know. It seems like supplement yeah. supplement companies are all are, are all about uh, how much rather than yeah, just yeah. what now. Yeah. yeah. Does that end up being I, demonstrably better? I think. Um, I think. Well, I guess there's a saying in the drug in the drug industry or in pharmacy, it's drug dose duration. Mm-hmm. So, or in this case, it's supplement dose duration. But you can't do three S's or you know whatever. So, drug dose duration. Supplement. What's the dose? What's the duration? And dose is key. I mean, if you. A lot of products are underdosed, and that's that can be a problem. Now, if they're underdosed, could you take them long enough to get a dose? Eh, I guess conceivably you could. Right. But let's take the simple one, caffeine. You have to dose properly to get an effect with caffeine, and the low end of the dose is about three milligrams per, per kilogram. Anything less than that, you probably won't get an effect. So in that case, dosing is key. Uh, an amino acid like L-citrulline. Uh, dosing is key. You need to get gram amounts of it, not milligram amounts. If you look at some of these pre-workouts, pre-workout products, it's milligram amounts. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I think it's important that you you work with a dose that at least shows some clinical promise. Otherwise, it is it's kind of a fairy dusting, which mm. you know it's not fair to the consumer. Right, right. Hmm. And so where where do, where do you think timing fits in the priorities then? If, if somebody is is trying to get the most of the supplements that they spent that, that okay, money on, so timing in general, or yeah, so, let's talk about protein timing okay. in particular. Yes. Um, so you think, okay, here's you know I've got my my amount that I'm aiming right. for, uh, and the sources that I'm aiming for. At what point do you need to start to get strategic about timing? Oh, all right, I have to get it before or after my workout. Right. Well, I think I think the the challenge with timing is that the original timing studies were actually on carbohydrate, not protein. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do know that particularly if you do prolonged cardio or you do two a days, you got to get the timing becomes critical because you got to recover for the next training right. bout, which is right. in the same day. A lot of elite endurance athletes do that. Football players do it when they do two a days and things like that. Now, in terms of protein timing, this is where it gets kind of tricky. And I think there's been a lot of confusion. Let's say you need 200 grams of protein a day or 200, 200 pound male or female. Um, and you split it up during the day. Now, what do you do post-workout? You know, the recommendation I give is we'll get, we'll get 20 to 40 grams of protein a day. Mm-hmm. And I remember a couple of years ago, people were saying, oh, the timing, it doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. You could just go, go home, hang out, take a shower, and then you could eat your protein later because what matters is total protein per day, which is correct. Total protein matters per day, but you still have to distribute it. But that's not even the argument I would make. The argument I would make is this. Are you ever helped by not eating? Is not, does not eating ever help you? Mm-hmm. The answer is no, it never helps you. So why would anyone choose to not eat? If you're done your workout and you're driving home, let's say you got a 30 minute drive home or whatever. I mean, here you probably have like a three hour drive home. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, why not do the shake immediately post-workout? Because not doing the shake confers zero benefit. And, and this is where I differ from a lot of scientists. I tend to take, not I tend, I do, I take a very pragmatic approach to this. It's sort of like, well, is there a benefit or not benefit to doing it? If the benefit is marginal, it's still a benefit. Mm-hmm. If there's if there's a benefit to not eating, well, then I'd like to know what that benefit is because I haven't found it yet. And that's where the protein timing issue gets gets really muddled in that people are like, well, I don't, it doesn't matter what I do. Well, no, it does matter what you do mm-hmm. <laughs> because not eating confers nothing. So, no, I, li- I like that approach. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the thing I tell people is if it if it's a, an effective part of your ritual, if having yes. your post-workout post, post, uh, shake helps you remember to have a shake, period, then... That's right. It they, helps you remember then, to eat protein. get in that atom- anabolic window unapologetically at right, that point. Exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> but no, here's what's funny. The anabolic window, let's say, stretches for hours, right? And so the idea was, but well, because the anabolic window could stretch for hours... It doesn't matter what you do immediately post-workout when, in fact, that's the wrong way of thinking. The, the, well, to me, it's the wrong way of thinking. The right way to look at it is, well, if the anabolic window is that long, take advantage of every freaking part of the window. Right. Why would Load you ignore it? Get two meals in it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you touched on that, that kind of recommendation that we hear a lot, that 20 to 40 grams per meal. Right. Another question that we get asked all the time is, how much is too much to eat in any one sitting when it comes to protein? Okay, good question. How much is too much to eat? The answer to that is nobody really knows. Ah. Um, that's why we work. We know the minimum to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. I'd say go with the 20 grams. That'll work for most guys and girls. The maximum is unknown. But again, if, let's say you're dealing with a, let's deal with the extreme, the 400-pound sumo wrestler, 400 grams of protein. He's got to eat a lot. So he's splitting up his protein, you know, throughout the day. Um is he going to go by 30 grams a right. meal? 
He'd be eating like 35 meals. I mean, come on. So, and, and even take an NFL lineman who weighs 300 pounds to get 300 grams of protein, you know, 30 grams a, a meal. I mean, you're crazy. Yeah. And here's the thing. I mean, I don't want to get into like a lot of like hardcore biology, but think of this from an evolutionary standpoint. Human beings evolved basically to withstand starvation and that, and then they would gorge if, if food was plentiful. Now imagine you've been starving for two days. You finally catch a deer. You, you want to eat and your buddy, your caveman buddy says, you know what? 30 grams of protein, that's it. Stop. And you're like hungry. You're like, well, you just want to eat and eat and eat. You want the whole deer leg. It makes sense from a biological standpoint that your body can uh, take in and utilize a lot of protein, certainly a lot more than 30 grams. That's like nothing. That's like a chicken breast. I mean, that's nothing. I go to Popeye's, I have chicken breast, wings, and legs. And Right. So it's going, it's doing something. We just don't necessarily know what the rest of the protein yeah, is doing. Yeah. Well, you're utilizing it for something. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. If humans have, have adapted to survive famine, and obviously none of us undergo famine, but what happens when it's, yes. it's feast, you starve, you feast, you starve, there's got to be a mechanism for your body to utilize 100 grams of protein in one sitting. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we'd all be dead as a species. Right, mm-hmm. right. No, hmm. that makes perfect sense. So now you, you, t- you talked about um, high protein for the person who's 60 to 80. I also saw on your Instagram feed the other day something about creatine for the person who's 60 to 80. Yeah. I know you're a big defender or, um, I don't know, champion of creatine as a, as a I supplement. Love creatine. Yeah. Um, do, do, you, do you think we're getting to the point where the research is stacking up that's going to be considered a vitamin at some point? Or is it too tainted as a sports supplement? Still? You know, I don't think it'll be considered a vitamin because technically you don't need it right, and right. you don't get a deficiency mm-hmm. symptom. However, it may actually be healthier than taking a vitamin. Mm. Uh, uh, my wife and I used to coach um, travel softball down in, down in South Florida. And when my kids were young, they played softball for about seven, eight years. I had my daughter, who was a pitcher, take creatine mm-hmm. when she was little. So, I mean, because it's a power sport. Um, Everyone should take creatine from, from a very young age to very old age. And I always say, even if you don't care about the muscle stuff, because a lot of people are like, well, I'm not a bodybuilder, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. Take it for your brain. There's good data showing that it helps memory. Um, it serves as a fuel, actually, for your brain. So that is reason enough alone to take. In fact, there's data that suggests that for if you compete in a sport where head trauma is a possibility, soccer, uh, the fight sports, mixed martial arts, boxing, uh, football, take creatine for your brain. It protects it. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, just out of curiosity, because you said at the very beginning that you kind of discourage treating food like math or, or doing math to try to figure out yeah. what to eat. Nutrition should not be about Nutrition, mathematics. That, that's what you said. So if someone is not a you know food scale person, they're not weighing every single calorie. Me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you <laughs> kind of, you know... How would you, like, what kind of signs would you look for that, hey, maybe I need to increase the protein? Hey, maybe I'm getting a little too high. Like, are there certain kind of signs, symptoms that people can look for? Well, to me, I think it's it's a question of, uh, it, if you make the right food choices, you actually don't even have to count protein grams. I think if most people, let's say, eat three meals a day and then have two snacks, so technically that's five meals a day. But let's say in each of those meals, they get 20 grams of protein. That is actually enough for most people. Um, And I guess, guys, the serving size will be greater than, let's say, girls. And the emphasis would be on whole foods and and whole protein and things like that. And if you need to do one shake post-workout, that to me is fine. And and you don't have to count anything. You're just looking at the kinds of foods you eat. Um, What's interesting is a lot of people even have a hard time with that. (laughs) That's some simple stuff. So You'll notice someone get cranky because they don't have enough sugar. But like, yeah. you know, like people get cranky if they don't have enough protein. But I, but I don't know. <laughs> Actually, Maybe you. I get cranky if I don't have enough coffee and white rice. Uh, so that's, those are two of my, two my favorites there. Um, yeah, people think, you know, it's funny. On, on Twitter, is, is really kind of funny. This guy accused me of being anti-carb. They're like, you do all this protein research. You're such an anti-carb person. I'm thinking, has he ever sat down and had dinner with me? I eat like a <laughs> bowl of rice. I'm like, I grew up eating rice all day. So, but. I was like, this guy's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> now, um, one, one other thing I wanted to ask. So the, the winds of favor are always blowing for or against one supplement or the other. Yeah. You know, like 
it seems like branching amino acids are really popular and then there will be there will be a community that's totally anti and glutamine is one that we hear about all the time where it was it was the be all end all and now when you run a glutamine piece everybody says glutamine is an absolute scam (laughs) um you know if i use scam (laughs) or it does nothing unless you're a burn patient is what we always hear (laughs) what if you're a burn patient right exactly (laughs) but but you you've written kind of in defense of glutamine in the past and i I wanted to know where you stand on on that particular supplement because it's one that Bodybuilders are notorious for taking. Also. You know what's interesting about glutamine? Uh, I actually published a review paper on it probably 20 years ago, mm-hmm. um, saying that it had a role with, with mainly protecting the immune system. Okay, mm-hmm. now I've always I've always put a caveat to using glutamine. And the caveat is this: unless you're training your ass off, it's not going to do anything. When I say training your ass off, is it the equivalent to you running 50 to 80 miles a week? So. And it's easy to quantify endurance stuff because it, there's a, you know, it's mileage. I don't know how you quantify that with bodybuilding. Is it more volume, more sets? Um, are they doing two-a-days? If you're training your butt off, then maybe glutamine will help just from the standpoint of protecting your immune system. And now that we're learning more about the, you know, how, how your immune system is affected by your gut and your gut bacteria and all that stuff that I don't understand, I'm trying to understand it. Maybe glutamine plays a role because it serves as fuel for your GI tract or your your intestines. So I wouldn't discount it. I would just say it's, again, it's context. It serves a use for a small subset of athletes who work their tail off. I would say if you're... If your grandma walking your poodle three times a week for 30 minutes in Boca Raton, Florida, you don't need glutamine. Unless you're also a burn victim. (laughs) (laughs) If your dog's a burn victim, then give the dog glutamine. Are there there any other supplements like that that come to mind where you think, you know what, it it has value, but maybe only if you are really pushing it. Only if you're in this top 1%. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what, well, I think branch chains are one of those, has limited value, but again, if, if not being sore is something you're trying to avoid. You don't want to be sore. I think I think it has utility there. Um, a lot of the single amino acids, like just leucine alone, um, taurine alone. I mean, there's data that show it, it can help either with muscle protein synthesis or with performance or something. But again, it's one. It, the utility is is, is limited, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean it's useless. And I think. It's weird in this industry, and sometimes in the science industry, it, it, people paint this sort of black and white, or or it's a zero-sum game. Well, if you do this, you can't do that. Well, I remember when I gave my talk on protein, one of the criticisms was, well, if you eat a high-protein diet, it limits the, the intake of fiber. And I'm thinking, how the hell does it do that? So if I eat a steak, I can't have broccoli with it? Mm-hmm. And so... This either-or mentality not only exists with clinicians, but it even exists with scientists sometimes. It's the, you know, well, don't take branch chains because whey protein's better. Well, it depends what your goal is. Um, and I guarantee you that if you're riding a bike for four hours, you're not sucking down whey protein. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you are, but you'll be throwing up. You're probably taking a branch chain amino acid cocktail with caffeine and sugar or whatnot. So th- context is critical for a lot of these supplements. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Branch chain amino acids and endurance athletes have an interesting relationship too. I feel like I don't see, I don't know a lot of um, athletes, endurance athletes who take them religiously. But after I started working here, I, I remember thinking like bodybuilding and branch chain amino acids doesn't really, doesn't really make sense because they're getting so much protein. But for an endurance athlete, branch chain mm. amino acids seem to make a lot more sense. It does. In fact, that's where I've seen Oddly enough, in South Florida, most of its use, and usually as a as something they consume during, particularly a, a bike ride. It's hard to do it during a run because you have to carry stuff. I mean, runners. I, I chew them during mountain races. Oh, it, t- it tastes like shit. But <laughs> but I find them incredibly effective as just a you not. Ch- uh, or, he, yeah. he, he's a weirdo. It's okay. Or I'll swallow a capsule or if, if my throat's really dry during, I'm thirsty. I'll like, just, yeah, during a race. And you chug it. But, no, no, there's little pills. Oh, you don't even wash it down? With- I'll try, but it depends on how much water I have, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. But, but I mean, yeah, within the context of competition or yeah. long training, you think that's the place where that can be most beneficial? I think it is. Or within the context, yeah, uh, competition, hard training, because the next day, you don't want to be crazy sore. Right. That way you could go out and bike or swim or whatever you're doing. Right. And, yeah, and the, the, the soreness connection is one that, that we, we have used a lot over the years yeah. in, in articles here. Is that, is that uh, how, do you, how do you benefit from that? Like, it's not like taking Tylenol or something. Right. Like, well, right. The, the NSAIDs are different because the NSAIDs may actually inhibit but recovery long term, right. uh, mm-hmm. whereas branch chains or, or branch chains could help. Like for instance, uh, you you say you compete in mountain bike racing or no trail running, trail running yeah. or something like that. You could call it competing. I usually okay. come in last. Well, 
But hey, you're still racing. But exactly. he does it. <laughs> in, in South Florida, I actually, I'll use the word compete. I race in, in stand-up paddling races. So they ra- range anywhere from three, three miles. The longest race I've done is a, is a race around Key West Island. Cool. It, takes, mm-hmm. it took almost three hours to do. Um, you're, pretty, you're pretty beat up. Mm-hmm. And even training for it, you get beat up. And the last thing you want to be, at least for me, and maybe it's a personal thing, I don't want to, to me, being sore carries no value. Mm-hmm. Because it inhibits the way you train. And, and I think from when physique athletes think of soreness, they think of, oh, I worked out hard. I feel Gross. good. It's good. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there is some evidence to show that damage is needed for, for producing hypertrophy. Whereas for 99% of sports, it's not important. You don't want to be sore because mm-hmm. it inhibits the way you practice. Whether you're playing basketball, volleyball, football, rugby, lacrosse, being sore is a bad thing, actually, because it, particularly when you're practicing a skill. Um, and to me, one of the hardest skills is either pitching a baseball or, or hitting a baseball. Last thing you're pitching... Terrible at both of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you're sore, then you're going to be really bad yeah, at both exactly. of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, that's, th- those are some circumstances or sports where it would be quite helpful. And if somebody's looking to capitalize on that, is it important to take it before? I think before and or during would okay. help. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the, I think, again, the dosing is probably more important. Um, you, you know, I always say five to 15 grams and just play around with the dosing. You can probably figure out what, what works best for you. Because I think... One of the things people don't take into account is, is GI distress. A lot of people, like for instance, for me, pre-workout, I actually can't take anything other than caffeine. Mm-hmm. Anything else, I get an upset stomach. So to me, I'm not taking protein. I'm not taking branch chains or anything like that. But in the middle of something, I can consume stuff for whatever weird reason. Mm-hmm. I don't get an upset stomach. But if I do it right before, like 20 to 30 minutes before, I'm like, Ugh, I just don't. Even like electrolytes or something? Or? Uh, yeah, it's I got to be in the middle of it for some reason. And, and obviously mm. people experiment and they sort of figure this out. Sure, so. I like to have a big sandwich, like a really long <laughs> a hoagie. You know. Is there at least one gram per pound? Of <laughs> oh, absolutely. I order, I order it special. Okay, good. <laughs> then you're on track. <laughs> Anything else, Heather? No, I think okay. he, uh, we've he covered all the questions. Yeah, <laughs> We've covered an incredible uh, amount of information here. Thank you for coming and talking to oh, us. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Um, yeah, and um, we'll see if we can. Uh, we'll see. So, wh- where, where do people find you online if they want to get? Okay, there? well, you can find me online. Actually, um, uh, I'm the CEO of the International Society of Sports and Nutrition. The website is issn.net, and you can find me online there. You can get my email. But I, I do want to say our 15th annual conference, it's all sports nutrition, a little bit of exercise training, is June 7th to 9th, Clearwater Beach, Florida, next year. So, if you want to go to the beach, because I've seen the beaches here, they're not so pretty. Um, we have a beautiful river. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you got a nice river. Yes. Um, uh, come to Clearwater Beach next June, and it's sports nutrition science for two and a half full days. It's it's a lot of fun. And it, if you've ever been to a science conference, one of the first things people say is, God, these science people are boring as hell. It's just boring, boring, boring. Our conference is not boring. You'd love it. It's a highly caffeinated conference. It's highly caffeinated, yeah. highly boozed up, and highly protein High protein. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> protein, <laughs> boost, caffeine. <laughs> There's your T-shirt right there. That's <laughs> our tagline. There you go. So. You, you might uh, get decent attendance with that tagline. <laughs> Great. Dr. Antonio, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Hey, if you like free stuff, you're going to like Tim's Rewards by Tim Hortons. You can earn free food or drinks after every seven purchases. Cool. How do I win? Um, it's not a contest. You just use your Tim's Rewards card, and after seven purchases, you score a free coffee, tea, or baked good. Whoa, so I've got a pretty good chance of winning. Well, actually, you've got a 100% chance of winning. Those are great odds. <laughs> they sure are. Free coffee and more with Tim's Rewards. It's Tim Horton's way of saying thanks. Valid only at participating restaurants. Please visit restaurant or timhortons.com rewards for full program details.